Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And I'm James Mendez-Hodes. What's good? <laughs> How's it hey, going? Hey, good to have you, Mendez. Um, so each month on Spectology, we pick a book, read it, and talk about it over two episodes. This is our first pre-read episode for The Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hopkinson. Uh, each month, these pre-read episodes, we talk about the context of the book a little bit. It's all spoiler-free, um, but we'll give you a sort of idea of like what you're going into and hopefully convince you to read the book. And then towards the end of the month here, we will post a post-read episode where we will talk more in-depth about the plot, characters, and especially the themes of the book and go really in-depth in it. Um, as you heard, we have a guest this month, um, James Mendez-Hodes. He's a really cool guy, friend of Matt, uh, does a lot of cool uh, RPG writing and stuff and um he suggested this book to us which was great because we've both been wanting to read it so um mendez do you want to like introduce yourself give folks a little idea of who you are and what your work is yeah yeah sure uh so i'm james mendez hodes uh most people call me mendez because they know too many people named james uh i'm uh, i'm based in the greater new york metropolitan area and uh i write edit uh, design and do cultural consulting primarily on tabletop and other analog role-playing games. Very cool. Uh, Mendez yeah. also, you know, has been involved in a lot of projects that are, you know, adjacent to that, those spaces, uh, everything from, uh, running live action stuff to doing poetry, um, which I'm a big fan of and translation. Thank you. Um, and he has a background in some of the issues that we're going to be talking about this month. Um, which you know is very exciting for us. We like we like to have folks who have uh, expertise uh, right. come on and, and teach us stuff. Thank you. I also wanted to plug um, your. You recently had a crowdfunding campaign for a pretty cool looking RPG. I, I incredibly dope. Yeah, yeah. I, I funded it. Um, so I'm well, looking forward you. to getting it. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. You have some cool <laughs> blog posts associated with that too. So do you want to talk about the RPG? Yeah. Just a little bit and give folks the like url for the blog yeah yeah definitely um so uh, my blog is at jamesmendeshoods.com and there's articles there about rpgs and race and culture and religion issues and diversity all kinds of different things um and uh the rpg that i recently funded uh, is called thousand arrows uh, thousand arrows is a tabletop role-playing game so you know like dungeons and dragons uh but uh, it's based on the Apocalypse World system by Megan Vince Baker, and the game is about the Japanese Warring States period of 1467 to 16-whatever, people argue about the date. Um, so yeah, if you like samurai drama and action and tragedy in the tradition of Kurosawa, then you will probably like this game. And one thing I'm particularly proud of about Thousand Arrows is that um, the game is designed to teach you to engage with unfamiliar historical and cultural settings. So if you feel a little bit of trepidation about the idea of playing as a, a Japanese samurai from a, a period in history, this game has your back. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's something I really love about your work, uh, Mendez, is that you have an incredibly thoughtful and detail-oriented approach to explaining you know, difficult topics in a mature way. Um, you know, this is, it's not, it's sort of like, obviously it's fun. It's a, it's a game. It's super fun. Um, but you know, it's not just fun. It's, it's, an, it's a kind of a teachable, it's a, it's a teachable space that you've created, yeah. um, for people to, to, you know, expand their minds and learn stuff, which I love. Thank you. And your writing on, your writing on RPGs is, is, is incredibly good. I like, 
love everything you've written about RPGs that I've read. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you have I would a way. Say, of, yeah. Oh yeah. For for you know for our listeners, it's like a more skilled and successful version of like what we try to do with this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah. Like, men, uh, one of the reasons I was really excited to to have Mendez on is because, you know, I feel like I can learn from you specifically the art about the art of talking productively about um topics at the intersection of race and culture and religion and deeply held beliefs of all kinds um it's really hard and it's hard to do well and and you know to get better you need good mentors and and good teaching and so you know i'm really excited about that thank you mm-hmm. yeah i um I'm, I'm really excited about um the power of games to kind of get deep into that subject. And uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast started um, in a lot of discussions of diversity in nerd spaces. There's kind of this one one syndrome kind of thing where uh, people end up talking about the, the basic topics having to do with diversity and representation and going over some of the same points over and over again. And those are important points, but in order to learn about those topics and in order to really expand our skills, uh, we got to kind of get deep into some of the technical details too. And I, I think that RPGs have a, a huge potential for helping people do that. They can also be really risky because when if someone's racist and they read a book, that's one thing. If someone's racist and they play an RPG, then it can mess with other people. But um, mm-hmm. so I think that both the risk and the reward are higher. But I think that's exciting. Definitely cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, in the spirit of of staying uh, of getting into the details and uh, and and diving in, let's uh, let's talk a little about our our book this month, which you recommended to us, Mendes. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to give a sort of really short synopsis of why you recommended wanted to read and talk about this? Yes. So uh, reading Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hopkinson. And uh, to be honest, I don't read a lot of fiction these days. I have to do so much research for all the role playing games that I write that most of my subway reading and so forth is uh, is research books or textbooks or nonfiction, which I like. I like nonfiction, but uh this was a this was a really rewarding break, and um, my story about how I found this book was that I was looking around in a bookstore, and I, I have this friend, and she and I do this thing where we wander through the speculative fiction section of a bookstore and just read dust jackets and first pages and mm-hmm. um, drag things that we don't like (laughs) um but but every now and then rules every now and then in our like in our little cauldron of of unfair spite we run into something that's awesome and so um so i took this out and i was like okay brown girl in the ring that's a cool song that i like what's what's this book about and then i saw that the back of the book mentions some stuff about um, and the blurb on the book mentions some stuff about West Indian magic and urban fantasy. And so I turned to my friend and I was like, all right, I'm going to flip through this book really fast, like I'm Doctor Who reading a novel. And <laughs> I'm going to be able to tell just by going like with this book, whether I'm going to like it or not. So so I did that, but kind of slowly. Um until I saw a bunch of words that I was looking for before I even opened the cover of the book. And I was like, yep, okay, the words that I like are in this book. We're, I'm going <laughs> to get this. And that was everything that I knew about this book, 
basically before that before I started reading it. I hadn't actually heard That's of cool. the author, although as soon as I got the book, I started hearing, oh, Nalo Hopkinson is going to write all this awesome comic book stuff, Nalo Hopkinson this mm-hmm. and that and the other. So I was excited about my dubious method of choosing this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so on our end of the world, we actually heard about this book when we we had um, our very first guest um, back in the day was Tobias Buckel, who is uh, himself a Caribbean science fiction writer. Um, and he mentioned this book and, and Nayla Hopkinson just generally as her writing is really kind of like important and foundational and the like Caribbean science fiction as it's understood by like Americans and 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 the Anglosphere. Um, so when you mentioned it to us as like one of the options of something we could read and talk about, I got really excited because like, oh, cool, this is actually something I've been wanting to read since then. Totally, yeah. Tobias Buckel was an amazing guest. I highly recommend you go back and check out that episode. We'll do um, where we had him on. Um, we'll we'll link it in the show notes and stuff. And uh, it's uh, it's a great discussion about um, a lot of different things, but among them the uh, the genre that we're going to be talking more about today, or like related genres and mm-hmm. a lot of the context that might actually be relevant to to this book too. Yeah, yeah. We also have our our pre read for the Binti episode might be somewhat interesting because in that we talk a lot about Afrofuturism more generally and sort of our experiences with Afrofuturism. And this is you know not specifically Afrofuturist, I wouldn't say, but there's definitely you know all this stuff is interconnected in some ways, whether it be the Afro Caribbean or the Afrofuturist or just the Caribbean science fiction. And so you know if you're interested in kind of like more of this sort of stuff, I'd say that's a good place for from us too. Cool. So should we um, get into the book facts? Uh, yes, book facts. <laughs> book facts. Um, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is Nat's thing of trying to interrupt me by whispering every time we do this. Um, yeah, so the book is Brown Girl in the Ring, Nalo Hopkinson. It was published in 1998, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's not a very long book. I think it's along the 281 pages. Yeah, so it's a pretty, it's like a short novel, I would say, but definitely fits within the novel category, which is also kind of nice for a February short month read. It's pretty, pretty quick to get through. Um, I've only been reading it for a few days and I have, you know, read like a quarter of it. Um, and I'm a slow reader. So it's, um, it is a standalone work. Uh, so it's not like part of a series or anything like that. I don't know if any of her other novels reference it at all, but it, you know, it's something we always try to do is pick standalone books that like work on their own, um, for, for this podcast. And it very much does. Um, and it's set in a kind of like post collapse, post fall inner city Toronto, um, where there's like, you know, society exists outside of that, although it seems to be kind of a shitty future, which is like my favorite kind of science fictional future. Um, and then, (laughs) (laughs) and then inside of, um, inside of the, the, this kind of like inner city Toronto, which has been essentially walled off. I don't know if with physical walls, but it's it's sort of like barricaded from the suburbs of Toronto. Um, it's kind of fallen into lawlessness and there's a lot of gangs and a lot of different activity. And so it's set within that and about, um, you know, kind of a, young woman with her newborn child who has to do stuff. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the plot. Um, it won the 1999 Locus Award for Best First Novel, and 
Nalo Hopkinson won the 1999 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, which is um, an award given out at the Hugo ceremony, but is not itself a Hugo, blah, 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 whatever they do about that. They're very coy about that whole situation in a way I find obnoxious sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> my asides <laughs> aside, um, aside, yeah. Aside. Um, what, what else should we say? Oh, I guess one thing we should do here is talk a little bit about like content warnings and, um, Mendez, I'd be curious what you, you say here. Um, we always try to do a little bit of a, like, you know, kind of trigger warning, content warning for the book itself and the stuff that we'll be talking about, just so people know getting into it, like what kind of stuff. It definitely seems more violent. Like we'll often be like, oh, there's some science fictional violence. This book seems more violent than some of the other ones that we've read. Yeah, they're uh, so content warnings. So it talks a lot about, uh, so there's some sex, although I don't remember any scenes of uh, sexual violence. Um, so there's, uh, there's some on-screen sex. Um, there are, uh, there are descriptions of some of the mechanics of pregnancy. Um, if, uh, mm-hmm. uh, if that's something that you're sensitive to, um, although not a, not a huge amount, it, it's more focusing on the, like the young mother rather the, or the new mother experience. Um, mm-hmm. and it, I will say there's some, I mean, it's not called this, but it's clearly like postpartum depression and the sort of like difficulties of the new mother experience if you're sensitive to that at all. Yeah. Um, uh, there is, there's a good deal of violence. It's, um, it's not like indulgently graphic, but it is, mm. it is quite graphic and there's some, there are some gory and upsetting scenes, like some mm-hmm. some torture and uh, kind of scary violence. And then there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of medical stuff talking about uh, mm, talking yeah. about surgery and disease and uh, sickness and all kinds of all kinds of different content having to do with medicine. Uh, and then another one of the huge themes of the book is religion. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then also an, another thing is that there's uh, there are people of of many different ages. And I know some people are sensitive about um, like if someone who is who is very old or who is very young experiences violence. And there's some of that in the book. Um, but yeah, I'd say that I'd say that violence is probably the biggest thing. Um, yeah. And it's it's at least what Good I've read so far of it. And, and part of why I, I wanted to call the violence out more specifically than we normally do is that it's written in a way that is meant to evoke a bit of horror and meant to evoke like it's very emotional violence, like like not to say that it's emotional violence, but it is violence that is written in a way that like evokes a lot of emotion, unlike some violence that we can read where it's more like cartoonish almost. Yeah, it does not. Mm in any way even a little bit glorify violence no um so that is that is not something that you are going to see in this book everything is all the violence is bad so (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. um cool and then um good stuff let's see we should probably talk about hopkinson a little bit um she is herself afro-caribbean i wasn't clear if she was born in the caribbean or not but she grew up in canada and in toronto i know um do you actually know that mendez oh i think i think there's a there's a mention of it in the book okay yeah actually uh so it says she was on the on the book jacket or on the back flap of the book it says she was born in jamaica and has lived in guyana uh, trinidad and canada 
cool. And she actually, she currently resides in um, California, where she's a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. So she resides in Riverside and, and works there. Um, and I know she's also done various... Uh, like I think she was a librarian at one point. She's had kind of like a lot of different careers and even spent some time homeless due to illness um, before she got the the professorship, which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so she's that had a very long yeah. and like, you know, kind of like storied life where she published a lot in the 90s and I think early 2000s and then didn't publish for a long time due to this illness and then um, has recently been like writing and publishing a lot more and um one of the things that I think she's best known for right now is she is currently writing in the Sandman comics. So that's like Neil Gaiman's old Sandman comics. She's writing within that universe. It's called the Sandman universe, House of Whispers. It's been going on for, I think, almost a year now. Um, and she writes a monthly comic there that's supposed to be really good. I unfortunately haven't read any of it, but it's supposed to be very good from what I've heard. So I'm looking forward to picking like some of the, the paperbacks of that up soon here. Yeah, I'm hoping for my uh, for my library to pick up the uh, pick up the trades of that. Um, yeah, and exactly. I'm, I'm really excited about that because Neil Gaiman and Mike Carey and a lot of the other Sandman and Sandman adjacent authors always there was always some African content and they were they were giving it a shot. But they they it, it didn't sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To say, yeah. To be a little bit generous. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that, that is generous. very fair. There, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of moments when it's like, well, I'm I'm glad you tried, but maybe you should have <laughs> talked to someone about this. And yeah, uh, I remember I, mean, I felt that yeah. way about the whole Anansi boys like book after reading American Gods being like, ah, oh, this is not as good. <laughs> I, I couldn't get into it at all, to be honest. I, I, um, I really liked it. I um, I'm highly I'm highly tolerant of different instances or different iterations Uh different installments in a series being very, very different. So mm -hmm. I was okay with it. That's legit. That's um, legit. That yeah. is very legit. It was yeah. more the like the mythical content felt a little bit less. I got like it sung a little bit less for me that time around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other, another thing that um, Hopkinson is known for that I wanted to plug too is whispers from the cotton tree root, which is a, um, Caribbean science fiction anthology. I think she's edited one or two others since then too, but that's something that um, Tobias called out for us in the, in the podcast we recorded with him as well. And um, I haven't read it, but it's supposed to be very good and contain a lot of, you know, I think it sort of started the careers of various like Caribbean science fiction writers uh, in, in like America and like kind of brought their, brought them to more attention and was sort yeah. of like important in that way. Tobias definitely calls out her contributions to the broader community of Caribbean writers and Caribbean sci-fi writers. Um, uh, she's definitely, apparently, according to him, thought of very, very highly and considered to be this, you know, sort of pillar of the community um, mm. in a really in a really cool way. So I was I was really interested to hear you say uh, that she um, about her uh, her illness and her. Um, unfortunate experience being homeless because i think that's that's something i didn't know uh, you know having now only read part of the book i think it's interesting to think about stuff like that and how that informs literature Lit uh, so many writers especially especially historically when you know it was even harder than it is now to break into the profession mm -hmm. um so many writers have been rich um in the history of 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 like popular writing and and uh, in even genre fiction, so many writers have been 
so many of the writers that are are famous have been um, privileged in a lot of different ways. Uh, right. It's I think it's really uh, useful to uh, to to call out the fact that you know this is a, a kind of experience that a lot of writers have not had that might inform her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so that's, that's cool. It definitely shines through because the, the right. setting um, it's a setting where homelessness uh, like suffuses everything and where a lot of, even a lot of the people who are really well entrenched in this setting are living in a way that uh, if you lived in like a privileged Western city, like if you if you lived in Manhattan or you lived in San Francisco, um, some of the most entrenched people in this book are people who um, more privileged people might see as homeless. And mm-hmm. it you can really tell the difference because homelessness isn't it's not just a plight. It's not just this sad thing that happens to people. It's it's a real part of people's lives. And right. Yeah, it's a. Um, there's all kinds of stuff going on there that I don't know that much about. Um, right. but I do want to be clear with one different. thing is, yeah, my understanding is that her homelessness was, I, so this is just what I read on Wikipedia. Uh, I don't really know that much about it. I almost didn't bring it up except for the fact of like, there is this kind of homelessness element, um, that exists in the book. But I think that my understanding is she was homeless, like more recently, like after, after publishing this book and many others. So I don't know oh, the experiences that might have led into this book. Yeah, it is. It is kind of interesting. Again, I don't, I don't really know anything about it except for like two sentences on Wikipedia, but I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I also don't, you know, yeah, so that, that I just wanted to, to make sure I clear that up and I don't give anyone the wrong impression. Um, but yeah, I do think that, you know, I mean, I think there's an element of this of like, you know, a big chunk of this book, uh, you know, talking about some of the themes have to do with, um, this kind of like post collapse, like, you know, like a collapse of government and regular structure and order, like within a sort of like future city, but like inside the deepest parts of that city, people live as if it's, you know, like not the future anymore. Um, there's sort of like a, you know, moving back and people garden and people, you know, kind of like like barter. There's not a cash economy. There isn't like a technology that you would necessarily like expect in like a future city style of um, science fiction novel. So, you know, I think that's definitely like, you know, thinking about homelessness more generally in terms of like, like that's what the state of homelessness is for a lot of people. Um, and it is worth also calling out that like homelessness is a state that a lot of people can find themselves in. Like the, the, I always get kind of upset when like, you know, politicians or whatever talk about like the homeless or like the homeless problem as if like being homeless is some like innate part of one's identity as opposed to like a thing that befell them and like a kind of a societal choice to even like allow that to exist. Uh, so that's my little <laughs> side rant <laughs> about how we talk about homelessness in America. Um, but I do think that, you know, there's definitely elements of that in this book. Mm hmm. Um, or like good elements are like she writes very well about like these kinds of like different living situations that people might find themselves in. I'm looking forward to maybe talking a little more about this after we've read the book, because I feel like I'm I've seen a little of this. I have only read a, a small amount of the book so far. I've seen a little of, of this and uh, and there's probably going to be a lot more. And I'm, I'm interested yep. to, to, to yep. have a have a view on it. Cool. So we talked a little bit about why we chose the book. Um, actually, has anyone else read anything by Hopkinson just before we 
kind of move on. Nope, this is this nope. is the first. Yeah, I haven't either. Same. Yeah, I yeah. haven't. So I'm really I'm really excited about this. She, right. She's she's somebody that um is uh is talked about just so highly by by so many people. Um, it's it's really cool to finally right. get around to it. I should have a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I only heard of her for the first time, like literally in that conversation with Tobias. So I'm I'm very glad that I'm getting the chance to um, here. And then I also haven't read anything else. And I think um, I think I said this. I'm about a quarter of the way through the book. I know Matt, you're about like a fifth of the way through the book. So we're both uh, we haven't read the whole thing, and we're kind of coming at this from like as being in the middle of it. Um, pre-read, baby. Pre-read. Um, so yeah. So why you know what's the kind of pitch for this book? Like you know. If someone likes books X, they might like this. Or like, why why should someone read this book before we get too deep in, into the themes of it? Hmm. Well, I guess for me, this is this is a genre that I this is a genre that I really love, and a genre in which I love to play in in role playing games. But one of the reasons that I like role playing games so much is that there isn't a lot of fiction that's like this book, and I wish there were more. Um, mm-hmm. So I have an I have an academic uh, background in religion, uh, focusing on West African and Afro Atlantic religion. Uh, so what that means is uh, I studied the religions uh, of Sub-Saharan West Africa, and then I especially studied those religions in diaspora. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, where uh, where they were carried over um, to the Americas uh, because of slavery. Um, so, um, the African religions that are practiced throughout the Americas aren't exactly the same as the religions that were practiced, um, and are still practiced in, uh, sub-Saharan West Africa in places like Benin, uh, and Nigeria. Um, the, uh, I guess maybe the plurality, a, a, a large percentage of the Africans who were, uh, kidnapped to the Americas were prisoners of war. Um, so, uh, young men, uh, who were soldiers were overrepresented, um, among, uh, among, uh, the African groups there. And so, um, these young men were often not the experts in, uh, in their religion. Um, and they weren't necessarily the, they weren't always the, like the primary keepers of that cultural data. Um, and Africans right. who, and I imagine what stuff they were primary keepers of had its own like martial connotations and that kind of thing too. Yeah. Like they had their own traditions and rituals. Yes. And of course, Africans from, from many, many different ethnicities and language groups, uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, religious groups, uh, were intermingled in the Americas. Although you can trace, um, you can trace influences from different places in, um, in West Africa to uh, different sort of primary locations in the United States. Uh, for example, a lot of Fon people from Dahomey uh, ended up in Haiti. So there's a little bit more uh, Dahomeyan influence in Haiti uh, than there might be a Yoruba uh, or Igbo influence. Uh, whereas uh, there was a lot more Yoruba representation in Puerto Rico and Cuba's uh, uh, enslaved populations. Um, so, uh, African religion, which came from various different sources, uh, throughout West Africa was sort of broken and remade, um, from the pieces of, of what people carried with them in the new world. And, um, that, um, 
so that sort of refracted and reshaped uh, African religious content uh, shows up in uh, various places in the United States and especially in the Caribbean and uh, in Brazil. So, um, so mm-hmm. that was my that was my primary focus of study uh, as an undergraduate. And as a in grad school, I did more uh, more Asian uh, materials. But um, I and I originally got into this because I was playing a lot of capoeira in college, and uh, capoeira is an Afro Brazilian uh, martial dance, and um, uh, West African religion, um, especially Yoruba influences come up a lot in sort of the peripheral, sort of the ambient legendary of the martial art. And so that's, Mm. that's how I got into, uh, that's how I got into that field of study. And this book is very, uh, is very thoroughly and intentionally grounded in, uh, the Afro-Atlantic religious diaspora. And there are influences, uh, and signifiers and characters from all throughout the uh, the African diasporic religious world. And so, if you have a background in uh, in that kind of thing, you know, every time a new character shows up, or every time you know there's a shadowy glimpse of someone from afar. Um, like I was able to, I, I I got really excited because it was like, I don't know. I guess it's like the feeling of when you're watching a comic book movie or. And you you rec- and you're a really big comics fan, and you recognize all the little references, and like, oh, okay, oh, for yeah. the costume, I know this must be this character. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. that was like yep. that for like yeah. for this. Every time someone was dressed weird, I was like, oh, okay, I know which African figure that is. <laughs> that is so cool. Can you? Is there an a, a, I, without giving too much away? Is there an example maybe from the beginning of the book or something that wouldn't be too revealing from somewhere else? Um, that that uh, is a specific example of that. Oh man, uh, I gotta. I'm gonna have to think about that. Sorry to put you yeah. on the spot. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll come back to <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it's it's hard to think of something that isn't uh, that isn't a, a bit of a spoiler because some of this stuff yeah, gets yeah. <laughs> uh, it gets introduced and then it's built up with kind of a slow burn. Um, Mm -hmm. but there are, there are, um, and we can definitely get more into this, um, when we do the post read, all the little clues that made me feel clever. Um, I think it's also worth saying, like as someone who knows zero about any of this, it's also like an interesting book. And I feel like it's, you know, I won't say I feel like I'm learning in the way that I might if I were reading a textbook about this stuff, but it does feel like this fully realized and lived in world that very much, you know, feels like I'm taking stuff away from it and, you know, taking a cultural context that I wouldn't necessarily away from it. And so I'm really enjoying that aspect as well as just like the story is really engaging from like the very beginning. Yeah. Um, And it's, I would say that this is a, this is an excellent introduction to those concepts so if you had no idea about voodoo or candomblé or lukumi or any other afro-atlantic religions before this this is a this is a great way to get introduced to those things mm-hmm. and and uh could you actually i wanted to ask you a little about the diaspora more the more modern version of the diaspora because one of the interesting things about the book that you see really early on when you start is, you know, it's set in Toronto, which is maybe a place if you haven't spent time there that that people from North America, you know, people from North America who haven't spent time in Toronto might not be aware. Or even if you have it, you're from York, you know, and you're from North York or whatever, you know, um, you might not be aware of the extent to which there's a diaspora community there. So maybe could you say, you know, say a little something about the diaspora more recently or kind of how, how, how it's, 
like how it's integrated into into like uh like new york where you are like have have you ever (laughs) yeah so so new york and and i've never been to toronto but i'm told that it has um uh there's a similar feeling in terms of uh immigrants from absolutely everywhere uh being really really Mm -hmm. well represented in toronto and also in new york city um but yeah, if you want to find um, if you want to find a, a priest in one of the Afro Atlantic traditions, that you have you have your pick of different ones in New York. Um, <laughs> there are there are a lot of people from Nigeria and Senegal and Sub-Saharan West Africa, um, but then there's also uh, you know this huge and and very very well established you know generations old now co- immigrant community um, with Brazilians and Cubans and Puerto Ricans um, and. Uh, you know, Trinidadians. It's also the multi-generational, like, Afro-Caribbean community of Crown Heights in particular. Yes. Like, I used to live there. And so, you know, there's, like, a lot of that kind of stuff there as well. It's yeah. really cool. And then recent uh, recent uh, vicissitudes of immigration and um, things about politics in the United States and elsewhere have also um, uh, renewed some of these... Uh, um, yeah, renewed some of these uh, communities, and um, so, for example, the um, the vicissitudes of war and uh, and refugees um, have also changed uh, what some of these communities look like. Um, a little bit less in New York than in, for example, the Midwest of the United States, um, and also uh, also in uh, various places in Canada. Um, so there's a, I think there's it's, a huge it's, Somali community, for example, also in Toronto that this book doesn't talk about as much, but um, maybe it wasn't as much of a thing uh, 20 years ago. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting for me to 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 kind of think more about this, because, you know, when I was I grew up in Southern California where uh, I was not aware I, I, I mean, I, I know that there is, I know now that there is a, a, a diaspora community there, but the entire time I grew up, I was not aware of, of Caribbean anything, pretty mm-hmm. much, um, Afro or, 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 or native, you know, nothing. Um, and, and so I, uh, you know, in my mind, the, the sort of the impact of Afro-Caribbean culture on North America was, you know, it was this weird thing in New Orleans, maybe. Yeah. And that's it. And so it's it's really kind of cool for me to think about the ways that this is something that actually is a cultural force that has impacted lives and communities all over the continent. It's not just this kind of local thing somewhere else. It's, it's near wherever you are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's something really cool. And actually, I had a, a cool experience, um, you know, a few years ago when I went back to L.A. for the first time in a while. That's where I'm from. Um, my friends uh, who I hadn't seen in a long time, who are friends from, you know, when I was growing up there, uh, took me to this Jamaican restaurant that apparently was their go-to spot, became their go-to, go-to spot. And uh, I've since been back a bunch of times. And it's it's this, you know, it's it's a it's a, just a local place, kind of not famous. It's just some random local place that, in an area where there happened to be a fair number of Jamaican people. And it's, it was really amazing. And it's also very close to where my parents' house is and where I grew up specifically. So it was really a cool experience to, 
you know, I think when I when I went there, I had just read Americana by uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and and so like I, you know, obviously she's not Jamaican or related to Jamaica in any specific way, but it was, you know, she talks about the Igbo community in New York City and and like the greater New York area, and I had been thinking about like these communities that exist like right next to me that I don't see. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really cool to have a very visceral experience of suddenly seeing that when I went back to LA that time and I went to that restaurant and I realized how close it was to my parents' house and how great it was and how much of a community was centered around it and, or at least involved in it. And, and you know, it, just a very cool experience and, and something that I was thinking about as I was starting this book. Yeah. The, uh, and I think that another issue that's kind of at stake there is, um, the degree to which people, um, have, have an incentive to conceal some of this culture from the mainstream. Um, mm, have you ever yeah. heard of a, this is going to seem really random, but have you ever heard of a court case called Church of the Lukumi Babalu Aie versus City of Hialeah? No. no. Okay. So this is a landmark uh, case that went before the Supreme Court of the United States in 1993. And so what happened there was that um, uh, a guy named Ernesto Pichardo who was uh, he was a priest of Lukumi of the uh, the Cuban uh, the Afro Cuban religion uh, it has a it has a very strong Yoruba influence um, also mm. known as Santeria but that's uh, kind of a vulgar name for it uh, Lukumi is a little bit more proper although some people prefer Santeria but at any rate so he started a church um, of his religion in uh, in Hialeah Florida um, and then uh, the entrenched inhabitants of Hialeah found out that among the various uh, religious practices of this church, um, they were sacrificing animals. And these people were all horrified that someone might kill animals during a religious ceremony. (laughs) And I just have to wonder where they thought their chicken <laughs> dinners were coming from because <laughs> well, yeah well the difference is that there's no sacred process involved right there's no sacred it's a factory process farm. For, and also it's more humane but like yeah so no i'm being yeah. well, unless, <laughs> unless yeah. it's halal yeah. or kosher yeah. it's more humane yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i mean like there are religious ceremonies involved with a lot of the meat produced in the u.s as long as it's halal or kosher yes true um but yeah, at any rate, um, so animal sacrifices are part of part of various Afro-Atlantic religious ceremonies. It's it's all quite humane as far as killing animals for food goes, and this does come up in the book a little bit. So if you're sensitive to that mm-hmm. kind of thing, be warned. But yeah. So how did the case fall out? So, like was the so they so the the city of Hialeah passed an ordinance forbidding animal sacrifice in town. Hmm. And Ernesto Pichardo um, took them to court and the court went all the way to the United States Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court uh, ruled that the ordinance uh, was completely unconstitutional because it was clearly and obviously targeting this one church of this one religion. Um, So it was a it was a landmark case um, for, you know, the jurisprudence surrounding uh, religious freedom. and but i think it also it also speaks to the fact that even nowadays um even nowadays uh, practitioners of afro-atlantic religion face uh, a great deal of pressure 
um, to keep their religion under wraps and not tell people about it because the yeah. religion has things like possession and animal mm. sacrifice, which other people are not okay with, even people who, you know, eat Jesus every Sunday. But um, <laughs> and that's yeah, that's present throughout the whole history of the religion. Um, there there was this whole process of uh uh, syncretism where Africans who wanted to be able to practice their religions had to cloak the figures and the practices that they were um, mm-hmm. worshiping and and doing in um, under a veil of Christianity. So they had to refer to uh, Shango, uh, the the god of of drumming and dancing and lightning. They had to call him Santa Barbara um, so that they could talk huh. about him. Um, uh, oh, that's so interesting. So, you know, you'd, uh, you know, you get together and you'd be like, all right, we're, uh, after work today, we're all going to go and we're going to worship. And then, you know, uh, the, the slave master walked by and you say Santa Barbara, but everyone would know <laughs> that, oh, there's a lithograph they gave all of us of Santa Barbara where there's lightning striking a tower in the background. So we all know you're actually talking about a uh, Shango or Oya or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, of course, fascinating, especially because of the you know ancient Christian tradition of hiding Christian beliefs under the guise of other activities. Yes, <laughs> yes, right. something which has something which Christians have done in a lot of different countries at a lot of different periods of history. Yes. Um, anyway, yeah, so cool. that's very neat. That's yeah. really cool. And yeah, and that's great context for this book too, because that's like an integral part. of like this needing to keep stuff hidden, and also sometimes not needing to, but still having that you know desire to, and like where where the push pull comes from. That is really is really cool. I hadn't thought fully about that whole context, so it's useful to 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 have like the whole context in my head instead of just like, oh yeah, slaves weren't allowed to practice religion. Like I knew that much, but like beyond that, it's sort of like fuzzy. I, I was really interested. I, I this is maybe an aside, but I, it's just it's really interesting to me to think about the valence of a lot of the tropes associated with Afro-Cuban religion in American pop culture, mm-hmm. because they certainly crop up. They're not completely hidden, but they have a very very particular. And not fair, really, at all, yes. valence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, well, what, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, anything that has to do, like, uh, uh, sort of New Orleans Gothic or, like, yes. Bayou Gothic stories. Yes. Um, you know, typically, I think the Afro-Cuban stuff is, you know, the villain. I mean, the, some, somehow or other, there's, like, you know, evil voodoo or yes. evil XYZ. Yeah. Um, and there, there are lots and lots of – and I think a lot of this dates back to – um, not just to New Orleans, but also to the United States uh, occupation of Haiti uh, during the 20th century. Ooh, and all of these yeah. U.S. Marines coming back with these half-remembered horror stories about there's this thing called a zombie, and it's really scary. And I think they have them in New Orleans, mm. too. And this this mm. whole um, mm. lens of, of misunderstanding uh, through which uh, – and zombies are now – uh, which are a very, very specific thing in, in Afro-Atlantic religion are now this standard trope that everyone, everyone knows about. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, well, interesting are like a sci-fi trope yes. too. Yeah. <laughs> like we've, we've scienceified them and made them like, you know, Oh, they carry a blood disease or whatever. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating. It just occurred to me that the way that the zombie trope has been, you know, extracted almost 
medically from the culture that created it and deployed, you know, by, you know, white people the world over to their own cultural ends is very similar to the way that pop music uses jazz licks. You know, it's, you know, you, you see this, this like very specific pieces of, um, of, Afro-American cultural products. I say Afro because it's not just like the U.S., but it's like all parts of the Americas. Afro-American cultural products. Very specific pieces of them that are just stolen outright. Like think of Back to the Future, right? Where where somehow history was written <laughs> such that like white people invented rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. in fact, Don't think of it. <laughs> yeah. In fact, no, that's not how it happened. Right. In fact, like this is a music that comes out of... Um, like you, like you mentioned, the syncretic process of cultural, the uh, the cultures of the, the both sides of the Atlantic admixing, mm-hmm. especially in the in the in the cultural spaces dominated by you know subaltern peoples, the slaves and the near slaves and the you know radically oppressed right. um, who lived in the Caribbean and the Caribbean area, and then also in parts of America and parts of Brazil and South America and Central America. Um, well, and sort of worth also maybe calling out, um, you know, talking about blues, we also read The Ballad of Black Tom <clears throat> on the podcast a little while ago, and there's there's elements of that where, like, the oh, main yeah. character, like, is a bluesman and, like, plays the blues and, like, busks essentially that way and sort of, like, how, like, you know, these, like, you know, poor black people busking in Harlem turned into you know, rich white people like selling out stadiums. <laughs> yeah, like the, exactly. You know, right. Flow it's like of you, that. Right. You draw a line from people whose names have been forgotten and who, who and of whom recordings do not exist. Yeah. To the jazz men and women of the twenties, to, you know, the early rock and roll artists of the forties and fifties, mm-hmm. to, you know, eventually like Billy Joel, yeah. you know, <laughs> or, 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 <laughs> yeah. or like, or like, the you know, Bon Jovi, brothers. or like, yeah. in, yep. insert, you know, insert white rock guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and that that also reminds me of, uh, you know how you know how all these blues guys they they sell their soul to the devil at a crossroads. Yep. Yeah. So there's a um, so a lot of people think that that quote unquote devil to whom they're selling their soul at the crossroads is actually Eshu Elegbara, the uh, a West African uh, a psychopomp and liminal spirit uh, whose sacred place is the crossroads, and who oh, wow um, who sometimes um, who is sometimes uh, disguised as the devil in Afro Atlantic religion. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Yeah, I I want to read a book about that. That is so <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, oh, that is so cool. Yeah, there's a mention of it if you if you ever play Scion, which is one of the RPGs that uh, that I worked on. Um, there's a there's a part where mm. um, there's a part where Eshu is loudly loudly claiming that 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 was no devil, that was me. I just dress the same as the devil sometimes. <laughs> awesome yeah. line. Um, awesome line. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, cool. um, but yeah, the. Afro-Atlantic religion ends up being the bad guy in like have you ever seen Live and Let Die, the Bond movie? Oh yes. No, yes yeah, actually, there's like yeah, people yeah, running around with snakes and skulls and Yeah, it's not good. Oh, uh, there's always yeah. I, I the was 60s thinking, love that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah but much trope. more recently, much more recently, I was thinking of the show True Blood. Ooh. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's a show not. about vampires. No. I've heard it's a lot set about in, like, it. 
Yeah, it's set in it's a Southern Gothic vampire TV show. Yeah, um, where you know is featured a, a fair amount of Afro Cuban religion, and like they, it's it's a sort of an example of like you know they're trying I think in that mm-hmm. show to to showcase like different kinds of characters and different kinds of relationships to that, but inevitably because it's a show about vampires and a lot of the characters are white and like arguably the main characters are white. Um, I would say they are, are, not arguably they are, Um, you know, inevitably it kind of ends up being, I I mean, I don't know because I I don't know enough about this stuff, but it seems like it must be distorted. And I bet if you saw it, you'd be able to tell me. Yeah. I think, I think in a lot of, uh, in a lot of uh, science fiction media and speculative fiction media, there's this colonization effect where, okay, you have Mm. like, say you're writing, you know, a role-playing game about vampires, right? Like vampire, the masquerade Mm -hmm. or vampire, the requiem. They have this Mm -hmm. built up, uh, mythology about vampires, which is pretty Eurocentric, and then they decide, oh, well, we want to we want to represent more people. We want to bring in some African content, and they do, but they end up kind of colonizing the ideas, and everything that's outside of Western culture ends up being filtered through this lens of, well, we're we're going to have Jiangshu from China, and we're going to have Rakshasas from Southern India, but they're all they're going to turn out actually just to be these regular vampires. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it uh, it kind of colonizes all of this content that they're trying to bring in, which is and I guess it's better than not having any representation, but it's still it still needs a lot of work. Could you speak a little bit to what you mean by colonizes there? Just I mean, partially for our listeners who might not know, because I think it's kind of a like term of art in like these kinds of cultural um, conversations that I think is worth like understanding pretty clearly for folks who don't. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm not, uh, I'm not a, I don't have a, a an academic background in in cultural studies specifically. A lot of my encounters with this discipline have been through other uh, through other disciplines like classics or, or religion. But um, uh, when we talk about when we talk about ideas or things other than countries or people getting colonized, um, we're we're talking about the same systems of violence and oppression. Um, and like forceful economics that are normally being applied to, or traditionally when you read about them in textbooks, they're getting applied to, um, you know, country A uh, inflicting uh, violence and pressure and coercion on country B. Um, But there are similar dynamics that can happen, um, that can happen with ideas and with culture. Um, And so, you know, we, uh, when you hear about cultural appropriation, for example, um, when uh, someone from an empowered culture um, uh, engages in cultural expressions from a culture that they have traditionally oppressed and marginalized, um, there's uh, that reinforces an existing oppre- uh, an existing dynamic of um, of oppression and uh, and power. Um, so when we talk about, uh, for example. Uh, some religious ideas getting colonized by other religious ideas. Um, it's uh, it's when the the religious ideas that are the target of the colonization get absorbed into um, absorbed sort of into the universe of um, the oppressor's culture, and the oppressor's culture is centered. That's assumed to be the default and the thing that is, uh, unless anyone tells you otherwise, uh, right and correct and normal. Um, and then everything else, if it gets to exist within that within that structure, um, exists sort of at the pleasure of um, the empowered culture. Um, 
And sometimes these sometimes these effects can be unintentional. Um, like there are lots of people who talk about zombies without having any idea that they have anything to do with um, uh, sub-Saharan African religion. Um, but they're still uh, they can still inadvertently and unconsciously um, reinforce these dynamics of oppression. And um, one of the one of the ways that um, that oppression works most effectively, uh, especially in like polite society. Um, where people aren't supposed to be racist. Uh, one of the most effective ways that um, oppression works is to make it happen unconsciously and have people participating in systems of oppression without having any idea that that's what they're doing. Because, yeah, there's then it's even harder to deal with because instead of telling someone, hey, that thing you did was racist, um, and them saying, oh, my God, I'm sorry, that was racist. You tell someone, hey, that thing you said was racist. And they're like, wait, what now? I've never even heard of these right. African zombies. Yeah, you imagine having a conversation. Imagine you're talking to your friend and, and, and they, they're, they, they, they say something about how zombies are totally sweet. I love zombie stories. Um, you know, if, if you were someone who believed sincerely in afro-cuban religion or in a in and in, in like an afro-cuban religious you know set of beliefs that related to zombies you might feel like you know oh well i mean that's that's makes me feel weird and bad like i don't know how to react to that like if i tell them they're being racist they won't know what i'm talking about and they might react badly and therefore you maybe have a hard time bringing it up I can imagine basically a lot of very awkward or uncomfortable interactions that center around that kind of information mismatch, so yeah. to speak. Right. And I think there's it particularly intersects with this idea of like the people who actually practice these religions in this context often have to do so in in a hidden way, in a way where they're like, you know, the actual practice of these religions is viewed as bad by the dominant culture. But then the dominant culture can take it and practice, not even practice, but just like engage in those same ideas and the same things in a jokey way. Yeah. Um, and again, it kind of centers this like when you talk about violence, when you talk about like like, you know, who is allowed to engage with whose culture? Um, you know, I think that dynamic is a particularly bad one. And a lot of times, you know, discussions of cultural appropriation, colonization of ideas or whatever really focuses on like, sure. Yeah, it's not, you know, like us reading this book and talking about it is not necessarily cultural appropriation. But if we were to write our own when Nalo was not able to, when we're able to engage in the ideas, when other people are not able to, um, and when we don't think about that, when we don't give attribution to where those ideas come from, that's where stuff gets sticky. And it's often not like a, oh this one person is doing something bad but you're engaging in this larger structural culture where you know you're able to do something that the people who actually believe in it aren't you're yeah. able to engage with the ideas publicly in a way that the people who believe it can't right and it's um you know you can still if you get it wrong you know or um if you get attention drawn to you on account of this like none of none of us as far as I can tell, none of us are of African descent. None of us are Caribbean. Um, so, you know, if we if we do this podcast and we talk about African religious stuff and we get it wrong um, and people get upset at us, that's, you know, bad for us and we'll feel bad. But it's also something that we get to put down and walk away from. 
So if mm -hmm. we mess this up, we don't have anything that's inherently at stake in our skin and our blood and our accents um, the way that um, a Caribbean person talking about Afro-Caribbean religion um, has stuff at stake. If something bad happens with that, um, they don't get to put it down and walk away from it. That's something that they have to carry whether they want to or not because society associates it with them. Um, for lots of visual signifier reasons and all kinds of other reasons, both fair and unfair. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. Yeah, very true. So and worth worth saying also that, you know, like reiterating again, you know, um, we may be getting it wrong right now. And <laughs> I am cognizant of that. And I hope that people will... Um, I, I, I hope and re request humbly that people will tell tell me and tell us if we get it wrong. I yeah. know that's not I'm not owed that, you know, yeah, as, as I as I try to say often. But no, even but nonetheless, uh, you I, know. I'm terrified here because like and I'm I'm often the I'm often the, the person who gets hired to consult on on Afro-Caribbean topics. And usually I hope that they've offered that job to an African first. But sometimes I don't get the reason why. But uh, yeah, just talking about <laughs> anything verbally like this where i don't get to go back and edit it and realize oh okay wait nope that word was not the correct word is always kind of terrifying but yeah we can if we get stuff wrong we can we'll admit to it and we'll do better and right yeah. and there is also an element of like you know i and part of why i like reading this book in particular is it's engaging with these ideas like from a writer who is writing from her culture and you know like like taking this stuff seriously it's the same reason that we you know read binti like from a writer who like you know took the ideas and that story very seriously um and so i think that you know it's like the other thing i always shy away from is being like oh i might get something wrong and so i shouldn't engage with this stuff like no, no please like you know never listen to us but then read the book yeah right and, I, and <laughs> like, going back like, to going back to neil thing. gaiman right <laughs> going back to neil gaiman yep. and mike carey uh, writing comics about African religion, I would always rather that someone tried to do something and got it wrong so that then I could correct them and, and point it out than that they didn't try at all. Um, mm. So, um, yeah. I think the tricky thing is sometimes I have encountered people for whom that may not feel true. Um, and, and there are there are certainly people, I think, at least in my experience, who... Um, who would rather not, who would rather other people, they, they, they basically do not have any more willingness or patience to let other people kind of mess with their stuff. Um, I think that the, the, there's a diversity of opinions on this and, and, you know, I, I don't, my view is I, that I hope my view is that I think, um, I think that there's always a possibility of training better allies and I, I hope to be a better trained ally. Um, and that's sort of what I, what I want. And, and it might be very difficult and not yeah. everybody will want that yeah. for me. But nonetheless, I, that is yeah. what I want to try to do. And that process necessarily involves making mistakes, being called on right. them, admitting yeah. to them that's and right. do better, doing better. There's no, there's no way around that. Even for people who right. belong to, belong to a certain culture, um, like mm -hmm. I get Filipino stuff wrong and I'm Filipino American, but there's stuff that I wouldn't know unless I had gotten it wrong. And my mom or another Filipino had pointed out that, no, that's, it's not really like that. So mm -hmm. regardless of who you are, regardless of how close you are to the material, you still get corrected on it. 
and right the, the and a big part of doing this well is how you take getting corrected on it it's hearing the word like you know colonizing ideas and not being like well i don't do that or like being told like oh that's a racist trope and being like i'm not racist like yeah. that's not the correct response yeah. the correct response is like oh how yeah like oh can you explain that to me or oh can i read more about this and like how can i change and how can i learn about what i've done and how it might be harmful because at the end of the day so much of this is about harm and it's not intentional harm yeah right like if it if often if folks thought it were intentional harm they wouldn't bring it up to you in the first place <laughs> right and so a lot yeah. of this is about like oh understanding like how do other people feel where do they come from to feel that way like why do they feel that way um and you know and this is you know something i always talk about it's like how can you relate that a little bit to your own experience in a way that just like helps give you empathy in any way mm-hmm. like you're obviously you know as like a white person in America, like I don't really understand racism at the same time. I can relate some of this stuff back to, um, again, you know, spectology bingo, but like, you know, I come from Alaska and like people like have all these preconceived ideas about like what Alaskan is. And I get the same questions about Alaska every time I bring it up. And like, sometimes that gets mildly annoying and tying into that, like, Oh, this like mild annoyance that like doesn't ultimately like reflect on who I am. Doesn't pose any danger to me. Like, imagine if that posed some danger. Yeah. Imagine if that was like apparent in my skin color or the way I looked or my accent, right. like how would that then feel? Um, yeah. And trying to like tie into those things is, you know, at least this is often my way of trying to be like, oh, why does someone like come to me with this response? And like, how can I, you know, learn from that response in any way? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a really good uh, that's a really good way to start approaching it. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, so much of this is like, oh, how can we like learn to understand each other better? Because people are cool yeah. and like better that we all try to be good to each other than to, you know, be shitty and be OK with being shitty. Yeah. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. um cool so i think at this point we should talk a little bit about the you know like other similar books like if you liked books x you'll like you know Nayla hopkinson you'll like brown girl in the ring kind of like move and then sort of like wrap up the podcast so we don't otherwise we could go on for hours and hours <laughs> and it is late <laughs> that would be so easy yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> yep and we'll have a chance to do that in the post read i know which are i've, always I've much had longer. to Believe it or not, I've had to prevent myself from saying certain things for fear of launching a thousand ships of conversation. <laughs> Same. We're having too much fun. Yeah. Oh, no. That's the, that's oh, no. the best, kind, yeah. best kind of podcast. Um, yeah. So actually, I noticed you mentioned um, the Octavia Butler, and we talked very briefly about this before. I, I'm just kind of curious, like... Um, why Octavia Butler was one of the first things you wrote down in our in our document, like why that was sort of one of the first things that you were thinking of in terms of this this novel. I, I wrote that down. I think I thought of Octavia Butler right away because um, actually because of motherhood, ironically enough. Um, oh, obviously, yeah, there's talk about that a lot of yeah. a lot of people will associate um, black female authors because they're black and female. And certainly, you know, I mean, there might be a place for that. But the the actual reason that I thought of Octavia Butler was that I was thinking when I was reading this book early on, you meet one of the main characters um, who is a young mother and she's raising an infant. And it, it dawned on me, you know, after a couple pages of reading about that, that uh, I don't know of that many science fiction books that feature not just a mother as a main character, but a young mother dealing with an infant. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. It made me think of a couple of people right away, Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood being being the the sort of first two of those people. Um, I, I thought of Octavia Butler because um, at least two of her 
famous series, the Xenogenesis series and the Patternist series, uh, involve mothers and motherhood, and not just motherhood in a kind of a close, uh, sort of experiential way, um, which is rare, you know, I think in science mm-hmm. fiction and like definitely, you know, a whole conversation in and of itself and one that maybe none of us are, you know, equipped to have not <laughs> being, not being female or, or mothers, but, um, but not just that, but also a motherhood kind of in a larger sense, um, motherhood in the sense of being the progenitor of a clan or a race or an entire family structure, um, a lot of Octavia Butler's stories last for generations and involve um, motherhood like cycles and um, bi- the big themes of motherhood kind of interpreted almost in a societal scale. Um, uh, so I think, you know, I don't know how this book is going to turn out. It may not be that similar to that. It may have more to do with this sort of experiential you know, depictions of motherhood that are very, you know, following closely the, the sort of the sensations and the, the, the kind of interactions with other people and the day-to-day kind of experience of it. There's definitely a lot of that in Octavia Butler too, but, um, especially, you know, talking about kind of bodies and women's bodies and how they are, how they are. Um, it's Mm. super interesting for me as somebody who is completely not a woman (laughs) in any way. Um, and I, you know, I get a lot out of reading that stuff and reading Octavia Butler, um, especially the the kind of really the closely observed bits definitely seems very similar. So I think if you like Xenogenesis series or the Patternist series, I highly recommend those as well separately. But like there are some some connections, I think, there. Yeah. And, and also just to say a quick word about, you know, motherhood in the context of science fiction is is interesting, I think, um, because I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sci-fi themes that can be profitably explored in a science fiction context that um, that you know in the broader culture maybe are typically not thought of as having anything to do with that. You know, I think of um, one thing that comes to mind is like uh, you know Margaret Atwood, Handmaid's Tale, sort of dystopia that centers around human reproduction and w- women's bodies. Um, that one of the reasons why that book is such a touchstone is that those themes, it makes so much sense to talk about those themes in science fiction context. And science fiction has so much um, a, a useful ability to interrogate those themes. Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, it took until the 80s <laughs> for, I mean, there were, there, were, there were science fiction books written by women that related to this before the 80s, um, some very influential ones. But, but but it 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 took a while for for that to kind of break out into the popular culture, um, mm-hmm. the way that it did when Handmaid's Tale came out. Yeah, and um, in, in role playing games, it, it comes up too. Um, I've I've made a rule for myself that I'm not allowed to make any characters who don't have family anymore, huh. because mm. it's it's just really frustrating. Like especially if you're playing <laughs> something more traditional like D and D, it's like. All right, okay, uh, you over there, Elf Rogue, what's your backstory? Well, my whole village was killed by hobgoblins. <laughs> and now I'm on a quest of revenge. <laughs> wow, man, that's, that's really... It's oh deep. That's really it's interesting. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, oh my God. what about you, uh, uh, Gnome Wizard? Well, my whole village was killed. 
by I'm an orphan. Yeah. It's, are we all orphans? Is this the Pirates of Penzance? Like right. and I mean I, and I just that is that is so for for those of you listeners who may not have as much experience yeah. with role playing games, let me just say that this is like so on the nose. Yeah, <laughs> my nose like hurts. Yeah, and I and I just yeah, I've definitely done that myself. So. Right, and especially when I'm the DM or the GM, I hate that because like now, how am I gonna? What am I gonna do with your backstory? Because there's nothing in it. Well, how am mm. I gonna make you feel emotionally tied to the secret family? Yeah, exactly. And and especially with like my game is they actually survive. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and especially my game is about samurai and like oh my god, samurai without families are much less interesting. And like so, there's <laughs> there's cool Ronin characters. There's cool characters who are unmoored. But one of the most interesting things about uh samurai culture and samurai fiction is these family dynamics and you know the first novel ever written uh, is the tale of genji which is set at the heian court in 1000 or so and it's just multiple multiple generations of um this one um this one charismatic asshole's family um like by the <laughs> by the end of the by the end of this gigantic book genji is long dead and um, you're exploring all of the all of the ramifications of um, his bad decisions. Um, but yeah, I just think that stories about people who don't have families are like like if you're actually exploring the dynamics of what it's like to be an orphan from an internal perspective, then that that's awesome. But I think that most of the people who are wandering around with characters whose villages have been burned down. <laughs> You know, and not really dealing with trauma outside of like the fact that you have a voice like Wolverine. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's just, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's more, it's more, it's almost an effort to just like not have to think about it too hard, right? Because like without the family, yeah. it's like, yeah, there's nothing there. It's just a blank, you know, it's blank, right? So like I don't have to fill that part in, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. Yeah. But actually, you reminded me in, in that incredibly funny rant of uh, the fact that I wanted to mention Ursula K. Le Guin also, uh. not for the reasons that we've mentioned her so many times before on this podcast, <laughs> although those reasons are good and she is amazing and a cornerstone of our culture, uh, but because she talks about family so much. So this is a point that my partner made to me when I was talking to her um, before this podcast about uh, motherhood and science fiction. Naturally, I wanted to talk to her you know, woman, <laughs> but, but, um, but, uh, anyway, I asked her about, you know, what were her thoughts and stuff? And, and, uh, you she instantly went to Ursula K. Le Guin as, as I should have, if I were smarter, um, because Ursula K. Le Guin writes about, she is like so good at taking the tools and technology of science fiction and applying it to the problem of how family works and what is family and what does that even mean? And like, how do we like, you know, uh, investigate the combinatorial options posed by like different conceptions of gender and gender as a spectrum in the context of family and children and child, you know, it's, you know, in the, in the corpus of all of her stories, there are so many different versions of this investigation that it's like, you know, you don't even, I, I was about to say you don't even need other authors, but I mean, you do, but you practically don't even need other science fiction authors because she's written in so many different ways about these issues. So, um, it, it, you know, in, in as much as this is a book about that, uh, I think Ursula K. Le Guin has a lot of resonance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the 
couple of books I I have thought of. Um, we mentioned Black Tom. Um, another kind of like urban Afro-Caribbean, urban fantasy with a lot of Afro-Caribbean elements is um, a book that was published just, I think, in September, um, maybe August, but called Black God's Drums by P. Jelly Clark. And uh, he, um, but yeah, that's set in um, kind of like a, a an alternate history, like fantastical New Orleans um, and is a really fun book, really, really worth picking up. And I think it's like 150 pages, so it's pretty short, like novella length. Um, but um, in fact, one of the main, well, not, not characters, but one of the main kind of like gods that is dealt with is... Um, is the lightning god who you were talking about she Shut is in some ways kind oh, of, oh yeah uh, oh yeah, yeah yeah exactly she is sort of like the like source of power of uh, of like one of the characters um in a really interesting way where this character like you know has this relationship with this like you know essentially force of nature um that's that was really cool and i really like the way that like oh that's right like different traditions like envision gods very differently and what it means to have a personal relationship with god like that can mean something very different especially very different from the christian context of that which is about like prayer and talking as opposed to like feeling and sensing and like you know hallucination and that kind of thing yeah you don't um one of the important qualities of afro-atlantic religion is that belief isn't a huge deal Mm -hmm. you don't Mm -hmm. like there isn't a there isn't a huge question of whether or not you really believe in oya like right it's it's a a lot of the a lot of the content is um, is that it's stuff that you do rather than stuff that you believe or stuff that you mm. have to you know intellectually get right. One one of the things mm. that I that I appreciated about um, one of the things that I appreciated about uh, the Marvel the Cloak and Dagger uh, TV adaptation was that it's set in New Orleans and there's a bit in the beginning where uh, Cloak has just gone on a on a voodoo tour. Um, and they mm-hmm. they wind up there, and they're in the the gift shop of the New Orleans Voodoo Museum, which is amazing. Um, even the, the if you oh, go cool. in there, if you go in there and you go in the gift shop, it looks there's voodoo dolls everywhere, and it looks like it's going to be this tourist trap. But if you actually go inside, it is this amazing trove of knowledge about um, New Orleans voodoo and the differences between Louisiana and Haitian voodoo, and it's it's a wonderful place. That's- that's so cool. So, I'm so into that. So they're in there in in the Cloak and Dagger show, and Cloak says to uh, the girl who's just given the tour, um, do you really believe in this stuff? And she says, well, you don't really need to believe in it for it to work. Which, mm-hmm. um, and, and I don't know, that might be a bit of an exaggerated statement, but I actually, I really appreciated that. Um, because belief as a paradigm, as the concept of faith, as we might understand it in a Buddhist or a Christian context is not really applicable to, um, West African and Afro-Atlantic conceptions of belief. Um, it's, there's just different stuff that's at stake. Um, so yeah, so Mm. that, that difference I think is, is important. Yeah. yeah, and that's something that book, uh, Black Odds Drums, like explores yeah. explicitly. Excellent. Too, which was really cool. That's awesome. That's that's yeah. awesome. So, uh, Mendez, were there some other books that uh, that you uh, thought were relevant? Yeah, or yeah, definitely. Provide good context. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I can think of dozens and dozens of nonfiction books, um, but uh, 
so just just to name a few um great yeah, introductions few. to <laughs> to afro-atlantic religion include flash of the spirit by robert ferris thompson uh the serpent and the rainbow by wade davis but don't see the movie uh and anything by uh yvonne p Chirot. um she was my african religion professor at swarthmore college um but in fiction there isn't a um, Actually, before we, before we oh, jump yeah? to that, could you give a little like capsule, like one sentence or something about those books? Oh, sure. and, like what what are they? Yeah, and... absolutely. So, Flash of the Spirit is actually a book about art. Um, and oh, cool! It is an it's an exploration of the material culture and the visual signifiers um, that are related to various different African uh, religious traditions. And even though cool. it's it's ostensibly a book about art in the context of religion it is one of my favorite introductions to um my favorite introductions to uh west african and afro-atlantic religion um the serpent and the rainbow by wade davis is a book by a, a harvard botanist who decided to go to haiti and unravel the mystery of the zombie and figure out how how zombies were made um and it's wow. um he gets really really deep into the culture he himself is not a practitioner of afro-atlantic religion but he learns a lot about voodoo and about um the process uh by which uh zombies are made and also the cultural context of zombies and why um someone might end up becoming a zombie um from a cultural perspective um because you don't just make someone into a zombie for no reason and uh the serpent and the rainbow um i think the the inciting incident that originally gets wade davis to haiti is that um uh a guy i think wanders into a town and he says hey i think i've been a zombie for the past few years and i don't remember what happened and i'm all freaked out and (laughs) so um so wade davis goes and investigates the whole the whole background um of that and while a lot of a lot of the serpent and the rainbow feels pretty white gazy um voodoo practice i've i've had voodoo priests tell me that um it's it's a good read as far as a lot of the content goes and that it's it's surprisingly uh surprisingly accurate in a lot of ways Hmm. Um, and then uh, Dr. Shiro is just an expert in African and Afro-Atlantic religion in various different ways and has written many, many wonderful things about that and is the reason I know this stuff in the first place. Awesome. That's, awesome. That's so yeah. cool. That's so great. Yeah. I hope she listens to this. Sorry, I'm dude. totally linking her to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, absolutely Please send it to her. I would, love, I would love to know. I would love to get her take on the things we've said and why we're wrong. That would be so cool. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. And then, uh, as far as fiction goes, the, the place I would start if you want fiction about Afro-Caribbean religion is a book called Mumbo Jumbo. Uh, it's by Ishmael Reed, um, who is a professor out in, uh, Berkeley, I think. And Mumbo Jumbo was written in 1972, and it's about two voodoo detectives from Harlem investigating a mysterious disease that makes white people talk, dance, and act like black people. Holy shit. That is amazing. Yeah, it was one I of I need that. It was one of the the seminal uh works that kicked off the multicultural movement in academia in which Ishmael Reed was hugely hugely influential and is one of the sort of ur texts that um that's like in the that's in the backstory um that led to Afrofuturism. 
It is my favorite novel in the whole world. It's oh my really, god! Really dense. How could I have not read this before? It's, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it's hugely dense and referential, and it talks about politics and voodoo and Egyptian mythology, and it's this hilarious. This is the same time that Space is the Place is coming out, right? <laughs> like this is the same. It's the same like micro era as that, and like oh my god, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and it's it is significant to Afrofuturism in in the same way that Sun Ra is. Um, so yeah, Mumbo Jumbo, one of my favorite books by an author who always knocks African religion out of the park. Um, he's written a lot of great speculative fiction and also non-speculative fiction, but like uh, he wrote a Western called Yellowback Radio Broke Down uh, about black cowboys and all, all of the stuff that he writes um, brings in religious and mythological influences from all over the world. Um, so I highly recommend everything by Ishmael Reed, but especially Mumbo Jumbo, which is kind of the granddaddy of a lot of these kinds of works. I'd just like to point out for those of our readers who may be budget conscious, there is a Kindle edition of Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed available for $1.99. That is a good number. <laughs> it was a lot in 1972. And, and we will link to everything that we mention here in this kind of book section. I'll make sure it gets linked to in the show notes yeah. uh, or on spectology.com. Sometimes the like show notes, the links don't show up in certain podcast readers and they do in others so you can always go to our website to uh to see those yeah. links as well yeah um and then uh let's see um ben aronovich is a, a white british author um and he wrote a series called rivers of london um which i'm midway through and it's about um basically a beat cop a, like a low-level cop um on the the london police force um who um, gets dragged into the London police forces supernatural investigation unit. Um, <laughs> but mostly because he's a huge nerd, but, um, and if you like audiobooks, um, the, uh, the audiobook, the audiobooks for the rivers of London series are read by Cobna Holbrook Smith, um, who was one of the lawyers in the recent Mary Poppins movie. Um, and he does amazing voices. This is my, this is my, uh, this is my thing like audiobooks by usually by british authors with uh readers who do lots of different accents in uh really impressive ways that is absolutely the best thing yeah and so <laughs> so come to holbrook smith he like he does sierra leonean nigerian british welsh scottish irish accents uh and eventually he he tries to do american and canadian accents and it sounds really silly to me because i actually live in north america <laughs> and presumably this is what he sounds like to actual nigerians and welshmen and stuff um but um but i i love them they're they're really nerdy um, they're a take on supernatural urban fantasy that doesn't people don't spend a really, really long time angsting about how the supernatural exists. Like they're just like, oh, OK, I guess there's ghosts. All right, let's do this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How are we going to solve these crimes with ghosts now? Yeah. And there's uh, <laughs> so there are there are lots of West African religious figures in. Uh, in that series. And I remember, you know, I was, oh. whenever I, whenever I read a series, I'm always kind of watching it like a hawk waiting for them to, to mess up African religion. And no, there are West African religious figures who are th there throughout the whole series who Ben Aronovich does a really good job with. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And they're, and they're major, it's not peripheral. They're like some of the most important characters in the book. 
Um, so uh, that's a great series, Rivers of London. There's books, comics, short stories. And then uh, finally, um, The Summer Prince by Alea Don Johnson um, is a it's a it's a post-apocalyptic it's set in a post-apocalyptic arcology uh, in Brazil. And whoa, yeah. Um, and I, I love this book for a lot of different reasons. Um, but it does it doesn't focus as much on um, Afro-Atlantic religion, but it does focus on Afro-Atlantic culture, especially as expressed in Brazil and especially as expressed through art. So um, this arcology, um, which is named after one of the secret martial arts fortresses in the Amazon rainforest that uh, escaped slaves built in the 1600s. Um, that's real. I didn't make that up. Yeah, those are, no, those actually exist. <laughs> big, big fan. Like I learned about that from 1491, oh, and yeah. uh, absolutely huge fan of that. Yeah, and everything related to that. Yeah. So this. Are, <laughs> Can I just say? Yeah. The the premise, the one sentence premise of this book is maybe the dopest thing. Yeah. That I've yeah post apocalyptic arcology uh, in Brazil, named after the Quilombo dos Palmares. Uh, with a, it's got a matriarchal society, and it's it's like well, it's it's post collapse and then rebuilding. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, what I, what I really like about this is that it, it does, it does really interesting things. I think with uh, gender and sexuality and relationships on, on non-traditional models, but um, it also, it's also about art and the thing that drives the plot forward. And the thing that all of the conflicts are about um, is the practice of art um that is so cool yeah and i i really really like it it's short it's it's ya also so if you want to get it for your kids it's a it's a it's a good choice awesome um so yeah the summer prince um i'm definitely going to check out every single one of these and i i should say i've actually already purchased mumbo jumbo while you were talking (laughs) excellent uh that is that is very cool i I'm really interested in the summer prints in particular, but also also the others. But that does sound like Adrian Bate. Different. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Someone set um, a trap for you. <laughs> the The only other book that I kind of wanted to call out here, because one thing we haven't talked a lot about is that, you know, like the summer princess is actually like kind of post-apocalyptic fiction and sure there's all this like you know kind of fantastic. Uh, I don't want to say fantastical, but like the fantasy magic you know stuff going on but there's also just like we talked about this kind of like feeling of like what does it look like after the collapse what does like homelessness in an urban environment look like like those sorts of questions what does a collapse looks like that isn't like nuclear war and most totally. everyone dies but just like society kind of falls apart and um there's a book by will mcintosh who is a sociology professor turned science fiction writer called soft apocalypse that is maybe like it's one of my favorites in the genre and as i've been reading this book i keep kind of thinking back to that which is about the sort of like you know kind of like lives of these people as they live through just like you know the world getting shittier instead of better um and there's definitely like an element of like you know this this uh the brown girl in the ring feels like the world has already gotten shitty we're not like seeing the process of it getting shitty necessarily Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. like that process what does that look like why does it have like why do we allow the world to get shittier um Mm -hmm. i think is a relevant question right now 
<laughs> and so Very that relevant. book in particular is one that has like just a, uh, like in more so like a lot of science fiction books it's like oh cool this is like an interesting sort of like reflection of current times that book more than anything feels like one of these few books that actually feels like it taught me stuff and that i like i think about it constantly now you know kind of like probably seven years after i initially read it um so that ki- i kind of wanted to point out that and the, the you know i think brown girl in the ring is also doing a very good job of that stuff so far and like really interesting and I, i'm really excited in the post read to talk about some of the specific specifics of that that i don't want to get into right now but i think will be really interesting to talk about like why the world gets shitty and the methods in which it does in this book i, I think that'll be cool to discuss definitely oh man this is a haul i feel like uh you know i feel like it's like a, a present giving holiday scenario <laughs> yeah we got we got a syllabus yeah for real for real like that's every episode oh yeah no i there i i i totally forgot i just i'll just mention really really quick two more i i don't want to like leave anyone out but like <laughs> I, I i we're gonna leave a lot of things out the the, re, the but there are specific reasons why i wanted to print to mention a couple of other things one is that i wanted to mention yas and yas's work he's a um uh, a Cuban. Cuban science fiction author known for Super Extra Grande and Condonauts and uh, a number of other books. And I wanted to mention him because I thought it would be interesting to kind of highlight the fact that, you know, the Caribbean science fiction space or the Afro-Caribbean or the like broader Caribbean right. science Well, he's not sp- Afro-Caribbean. Right. He's not. He's not. Uh, I, uh, the, the Caribbean science fiction space contains multitudes and like mm-hmm. it contains things that are like perhaps very different from each other. Um as far as I know, Yas's work is like very different from this book, and yet it you know it shares right. some some kind of um, similar points of reference in some like vaguer ways or in some like you know more attenuated cultural right. context ways. Well, um, Yas Yas is like a rock god in communist Cuba who writes about like sexual ambassadors who are the best at having sex and so need to go to other planets and like have sex to make packs work. I just I just <laughs> look this guy up and months. he looks in real life like a late 80s early 90s uh Marvel or DC superhero. Yes. 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 He is he is a he is a lunatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the reason why one of the books that I mentioned is called Condom Knots is because of what Adrian just said. Right, um, right. <laughs> uh, the, the reason I bring him up is, is, is like I said, because I want to kind of highlight the ways that the, the, that like the broader cultural context of um, the Caribbean basin and like everything that's connected to it is really big and like, is not one thing and is not restricted to the stuff that is not restricted to the stuff that we've been talking about more specifically, but like, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, contains multitudes uh, and so, you know, there's this like whole other universe out there. Um, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is there, you know, where they were sort of reaching the end here. Is there anything that has been unsaid that like folks should know before going into the novel? Nothing. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Okay, solid. So, um, well, with that, I think we'll we'll end things here. Um, you know, wanted to say a thank you uh, again, Mendez, for coming on and talking about this, picking this book. Like, I'm super stoked. It's been really fun to like meet you. We got to meet in person a little bit too, which was great. Living in like vaguely the same city, yeah, <laughs> very different parts of it. But um, yeah, this was yeah, really so, exciting. You know, thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, for sure. And can you um, can you pitch your website URL just one more time since yes. I forget it? Uh, and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. That's jamesmendezhodes.com. That's Mendez with a Z and Hodes is spelled H-O-D-E-S. Um, and yeah, you can go there for links to all of my RPG work, um, uh, essays and I've written and podcasts and interviews that I've done. If you want to hire me as a cultural consultant, that that's a good place to start. Um, I just want to highlight one thing of yours that we haven't mentioned oh, somehow, yeah. which is the Iliad of MC Homer. Oh, Would yeah. you like to say what that is? Yeah, sure. This is the side project I have. Um, I'm not very good. It is the dope noise. <laughs> I'm not very good at ancient Greek, but I've stuck with it because um, I think my life's purpose is to translate uh, Homer's Iliad into its original into English, but in its original format, which is hip hop. Um, yeah, a lot of ancient Greek epic poetry was actually free- it's like not facetious. No, right? no, 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 a lot no, of ancient Greek so epic poetry was freestyled. Um, there are these long repeated sections called formulae, which are analogous to a modern chorus or hook. That's when uh, the poet would get ready to freestyle the next uh, part of the story. Um, the grammar and spelling all kind of drop out because the only thing that matters is that it sounds all right to the beat. It's performed over that kind of simple musical accompaniment. Um, and it's all about sex and violence and booty and ostentatious modes of transportation. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, you can, I have a, I have a Patreon for that, which I, every month I say, this is the month I'm going to rejuvenate it, but um, you can follow me uh, if you want to see how, Hip. Apollo caps fools from a distance. Yes, Apollo will <laughs> cap you from a distance. Yeah. Yep. Or the uh, the fleet fleet of the Greek peeps. Oh yes. my god! I, I, I just like I I read it many times, or at least read it there many times, and I'm such a big fan of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank yeah, you. No, that's it's very cool. Matt Matt showed it to me a little bit ago, and I like went down the the rabbit hole. Oh, so. great. Your footnotes are also incredibly cool. Yes, yes, I have footnotes for all of the all the details of translation. And yeah, it just it solves so many problems the translators have been struggling with for for many years. As in ways the the footnotes will elucidate. Yeah. <laughs> Sick, cool. Well, with that, I also you know want to give a shout out and thank you to WJ who does our music, which you're listening to right now. Uh, Noah Bradley for our cover art. You can find his stuff at noahbradley.com. He sells prints and stuff like that. Um, you can find us at SpectologyPod on Twitter or SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to talk to anyone. I, like, I'm always on Twitter tweeting late in the night because I love the garbage site too much. Um, <laughs> tweet, tweet, and tweet, tweet. <laughs> I'd love to talk to folks there and, you know, always shoot us an email too. If you have anything to say, anything to add, uh, we, you know, we will usually discuss those emails in the next episodes when we get them um yeah and i think with that we're all done so yeah. thank you guys this has been a really fun time yeah thank you yeah see you next time thank you mendez Peace. see you later Peace.